0: It's better to give than to receive. I don't remember the first time I heard that, but I'm assuming I was a child, and I know I thought it was ridiculous. I mean, let's, let's be honest with each other here. I mean, we could say that. We can all do the religious thing. It's better to give than to receive, all that. But just imagine with me for a second. A couple weeks ago, someone had come up to you and said, hey, I have, I have two tickets to the World Series in the, uh, the Diamond Club. Now, my guess is not a single one of you, your reaction to that is going to be, you know what, that sounds great, but actually it's, it's better to give than to receive, and so I'm going, to, I'm going to take the tickets, but I'm going to give them away to someone else. Is that okay? None of us would do that, because it's better to go to the World Series than to not go to the World Series, right? It's better to give than to receive. It's an easy thing to say, and yet often when I hear people say that, they tend to follow up with a story that goes something like this, that you know, it's better to give than to receive. I gave someone $20, and then a week later, I got $100 back, right? Or I made this really sacrificial gift, and then a week later, God gave me so much more. we like, pay it forward, right? That's another way of saying it. And what people are really saying when they say that is, listen, it's better to give than to receive because then you receive even more, right? The irony is apparently lost when people tell that story. And the smartest people in our room Right now, the kids—they see right past us when we say this, adults. While we say it's better to give than receive, we also simultaneously send them thousands of messages through advertisements that you have to have this, you better receive this, you better get that, or your life won't be complete. Right? You better wear these types of clothes, or you better have that gaming system, or you better get the new phone. Right? Our kids see right past that contradiction. We say give—it's generosity, it's good—and yet at the same time. We send them advertisements directed to them, telling them that they're incomplete until they have certain things. Of course, the problem with all this is it really is better to give than to receive. And I don't say that as as just a cliched pastor who wants, let's all get religious this morning and and say cliched things that sound nice and warm and fuzzy at Thanksgiving time. That's not where I'm coming from. I mean, not just religiously or because Jesus said it, it's true. I mean, it's as a fact, a human being, your life will be better if you're generous, but sociolo- sociologist Christian Smith just wrote a book called The Paradox of Generosity. And he starts the book by, by saying this. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching. It is a sociological fact. But the book goes on to argue and, and point out and show through research that those who have a consistent practice of generosity in their lives, that are physically more healthy, they get sick less, They have a stronger purpose for living, lower rates of depression, and higher rates of life satisfaction. If generosity is a habit for you, if you're constantly writing checks to other people or constantly scheduling time in your calendar for other people, your life is better. So, why is generosity so hard for us? Why do we say with our mouths, it's better to give than receive, but in our hearts, There's a much different feeling, a much different desire there. So as we finish this six weeks in neighborly love, what does it mean to love your neighbor? How do you love your neighbor? We're going to end in in some places where we started, unpacking more of where we started, with generosity. That neighborly love is generous love. That if you're going to love your neighbor, you have to be a person of generosity. Generosity my guess is we all agree with that statement. I doubt anyone would say, no, actually, loving your neighbor is better to be a selfish jerk. That's a much better way to love your neighbor. No one would say that. We would all say generosity is a better life. So why is it so hard? And just to, to push in for a minute, and this, those of you who aren't Christians, you get a, you get a free pass here. The, the average Christian in the United States of America gives between 2 and 4% of their, their income away in a year. The Old Testament, the standard was 10%. And I would argue the people in the Old Testament were much much poorer than us, had far fewer resources, did not have the wealth, the economy that you and I have access to, and they gave over twice as much as what we give. Why is generosity so hard for us? To help answer those questions, we're going to look at Acts 20. The generosity, the idea that it's better to give than receive, that's an idea from Jesus. That Paul is quoting Jesus here, in Acts 20, it lays out three things, I think, that, that we want to push into this morning. That If you're going to be a person of generosity, you have to get, you have to understand, you have to push into. The first, you have, to, you have to know what your heart loves. Second, you have to work hard in love. And thirdly, you've got to be willing to spend it all. Know what your heart loves, work hard, spend it all. So let's push into Acts 20 under those three headings. First, you have to, if you're going to be a person of generosity, you have to know what it is that your heart loves. That Paul, the, the man that Acts 20 is talking about, was a man who planted churches all over the known world at the time. And in this moment, in Acts 20, he summoned leaders from a church he helped start in the city of Ephesus to come and meet him. And he, he's actually asked him to make a 30-mile trip to come and to see him because this is the last time that Paul is going to be able to see these leaders. And Ephesus was was a pretty amazing story. It's it's told in Acts 19. When Paul got to Ephesus, there were 12 disciples. That was it. And Paul stayed in Ephesus two years. And by the end of the two years, Paul was there. There were so many Christians in Ephesus, it was actually causing riots in the city. That this guy named Demetrius, he was a silversmith, which meant he made idols from silver, started a riot because so many people had become Christians. They stopped buying idols, which ruined his business, which made him mad, which made him start a riot. So many, the city was so transformed by Christians in two years of Paul's ministry that riots start. And so, so soon after the riots had begun, Paul left Ephesus to go plant more churches in more cities around the world. But here in this moment, he's called these leaders through whom he spent two years with, saw amazing work of God through these two years. He's called them for one last conversation. He knows he'll never see them again. And he talks to them about a lot of things through Acts 20, but where he ends, what we heard read for us by Corey, is, is generosity. Paul has one last chance to speak to these leaders, and he goes to generosity. And he starts with a warning in verse 33, if you heard it. Paul says, when I was among you, I, covered, I coveted no one else's silver or gold or apparel. Covet. That's a religious word, Right? And it sounds intense, especially, right? It sounds like the sort of word a religious person would say to make you feel bad about yourself, covet. I mean, it just sounds negative. And we can dismiss it as some intense religious word. And yet, we've all felt the destructiveness of what Paul means when he says, don't covet in, in our lives. That to covet, it's to desire, it's to want something. But, but that's not the problem, right? It's, not, it's never wrong to just want something. What coveting is, is to look at something, to want something, and say, if, if I don't have that, I cannot be happy. I can't be satisfied. If I don't get that in my life, I'm not me. I'm not myself. The is it's, it's not just wanting some, something. It's, it's this uncontrollable desire that, that if you don't have this, if you don't have that, your life's not complete. And we've all felt that, right? Even, to some extent, probably something you knew that you shouldn't want and you didn't want to keep wanting, and yet you kept wanting and kept Blowing lots of money on it or spending lots of time on it. We have all coveted. But the real problem here, it's not coveting, right? It's not that we want things too strongly. The the real question is, why do we want things too strongly? What's underneath the strong desires that we have? For example, when I I was in high school, I I, I felt like I had to, to wear certain kinds of clothes to either have friends or get girls to go out with me. Which meant that, that I had good jobs in, in high school. I, I made pretty good money for a high school student. And so I would, I would spend a lot of my income on buying clothes. And transparently, especially early on in my life, before I was really a committed Christian, it meant that I gave none of my, none of my income away. I spent it on clothes. But, but it's not because I, I really thought clothes were like the end-all, be-all. It's because I wanted approval and I wanted status. And my desire for approval and, a sta- and status is what drove my coveting, my desire, and drove me away from generosity. Or for some of us, it, it may be comfort. Right? That we want what money can provide us in terms of comfort to distract us from pain or distract us from a, a hard job or a difficult life circumstance. Whether it's a, a vacation that we go into debt to go into or whether it's, it's something like a, a meal that, that wasn't in the budget that we go and buy. Right? That we want comfort and money can provide comfort. Or some of us don't spend. We're like, I don't have a problem coveting because I never spend money. Well, maybe you don't spend because you covet security. Right? You want a, a, a padded safety uh, or a safety account to where you're insulated from the problems of the world. And if you think if you get to this number, it doesn't matter if you get sick. It doesn't matter if bad things happen. Anything could happen to you. You're going to be just fine because you stored up the money in the bank. And this isn't to say savings wrong. It's certainly not. But Security, A desire for security. You become a covetous desire that, d- that drives you away from generosity. And what I want to be really clear about this morning is it's not wrong to want things. It's not, it's not wrong, I would even say, to buy things and, and be glad that you're able to have certain things. The problem is when those things snuff out our opportunity for generosity. And what Paul starts here is, is, is to say to us and to these Ephesian leaders, you have to know your own hearts. So I would ask you the same question. He's leading in to them, with is, is what is it in your heart that would prevent you from being generous? Is it the need for approval or status? So the high school example is, is closed for me. Well now it's it's car, it's a house. The stakes are raised, right? My my covenanting has a far bigger financial uh, problem or capacity to ruin me now than it did when I was in high school. Is it status? Is it approval? Or is it comfort? Is it security? What is it that your heart loves that will keep you from generosity? And the easiest way to answer that question isn't just to privately reflect now in this moment. It's actually go home, look at your bank statement. Right? I think that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to budget for a long time is because I, I didn't want to know where I was spending my money. Like it's better I just assume it's all going well, right? It's, let's just not think about it. But when you start looking at where you spend your money and deciding where you're going to spend your money, all those desires of your heart come out. The things you cannot say no to that should be easy to say no to because you don't have the money for it or it prevents you from being generous. That if you don't know what, what you covet, I would say go home, look at your budget, look at your bank statement. And listen, a, a generous life, it's always going to include more than financial generosity, right? We're talking, we think in the back of your mind, time, your, your capacity, your talents, your gifts, all that stuff. And yet, I would, I would say a generous life will never not include financial generosity. Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if there's no generosity with your treasure, there's no generosity in your heart. Know what your heart loves, what prevents you from generosity. The neighborly love, it's a generous love. It's better to give than to receive. To be generous is to be a human being. So know what your heart loves, what it it covets, what keeps you from the generous life. That's point one. Point two then, work hard. I love where Paul goes next. Here in verse 34, it says, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. I love what Paul says there. He says, I, I, I met my necessities and helped the weak through my hard work. And the hard, the work, hard, hard work there, that, that means toil, it means struggle. Right, the, the word is saying, listen, I was worn out, I was tired, I didn't want to go to work, and I went anyway because through that I provided for my own needs and for the needs of the weak. And so Paul, here he's unpacking or, or hinting towards two big ideas we've tried to hit again and again and again through this series. That, that first, one of the best ways for you to love your neighbor is through good work, well done. And we, listen, we realize all through the series that can sound like empty, idealistic nonsense from a pastor, right? Like, like you, you, Tim, you to work one day a week anyway. You just get up on Sunday at like 9 o'clock, roll in. You don't know what real work is, right? And we have this assumption that, 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 that because work is hard, it's not worth doing. Or because work is hard, it, it's somehow meaningless. And Paul's actually saying the opposite here. He's saying, I worked hard because that is where I, you can really love your neighbor. Where That hard work, that toil, that struggle, good work, well done, which is always going to be difficult. That's how I was able to help the weak. That's how I was able to provide for my necessities. And so if you're a teacher, listen, you're going to have to put up with unruly students, parents who don't care, and most likely kids who complain about you. But work through that. Work hard for those students. Your work will not be easy, but it will be worth it. And it will be hard. Or if you're a medical professional... Listen, people are going to keep getting sick, right? They're going to keep thinking that they had to wait too long in the waiting room to to see you. And yet keep working for those patients, for your customers. In your work is there healing, but it will be hard work. Or if you're a manager, you lead your own business, or maybe you don't, you're just in a a position of management. You're going to have to answer phone calls you never wanted to answer. You're going to have to talk to people you never wanted to talk to, and you're going to have to do things you never wanted to do, but it's in that hard work, in that toil, in that struggle where you really begin to love your neighbor. But it will be hard work. And for you parents, you will be peed on, spat on, probably pooped on, thrown up on, screamed at, and then you'll go to the hospital that night and get no sleep. But love your neighbor, your child, through that work, in that work, and it will be hard work, is their flourishing. The, the, the Bible does not promise work is this easy, utopian experience. It's hard work and it's toil. And yet Paul says in that work, you love your neighbor. Right? The, 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 did you catch the language? He says, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. Through my hard work, I minister to those. And he's not, I don't think, just talking about his work as a pastor. He's also talking about his work as a tent maker, making tents. That's how he provided for himself. That you love your neighbor through good work. Well done. But the second thing Paul is saying here is that you love your neighbor through creating margin in your life, right? He says, I worked hard so that I could help the needy or help the weak. That, that what he's saying is I made more than what I took in, and therefore I was able to look at those who were in need, the vulnerable, and I was able to care for them through my hard work. That's where, this is where it gets tricky, right? Okay, so how, how much below my margin? How much margin do I create in my life? Well, that's point three. We have to know, first, what our heart loves, what keeps us from generosity. Two, we have to commit ourselves. This is going to be hard work, right? This isn't going to be, you know, puppies and naps and bunnies chirping at you, right? This is going to be hard work. And thirdly, spend it all. I grew up in a town where I probably had lots of people quote at me, it's more blessed to give than receive. And I think one of the reasons why, when I, when I heard that, I, and I actually have to confess, until uh, our senior pastor brought this passage out, I didn't realize Jesus was the one who said it's more best, blessed to give than receive first. Um, so there, that's, there's your pastor right there. Um, but uh, I didn't know that. And the reality was, every time I heard that, I had this very cynical reaction in my mind. And I think the reason is because I grew up in a town where that was quoted at me often, and yet, there was always this implicit message that says, that's not true. And so, for example, when I, when I began telling people, uh, by the time I was a senior in high school, I... I wanted to go and be a pastor, be in ministry in my life. Almost universally, people told me, don't do that. And the main reason is, your life is going to be worse if you do that. In particular, you won't make as much money as you could have made otherwise. And two, people are just difficult, and, and the church can be really difficult. Don't, don't do that. And what, what annoyed me about that wasn't, wasn't about the fact that I was, I was going to be a pastor, because being a pastor is not better than any other profession, right? Right? That's not what bothered me. What bothered me was the assumption behind that, which would have been a bad assumption, whether I was a lawyer, a teacher, an engineer, or whatever else I decided to do with my life. The assumption everyone came to me with was, listen, Tim, your life is a life to be consumed for yourself, not to be spent for others. Go and get the life you want for yourself. Don't do something that would, that would cost you. Don't do something that would, that would be harder than what you have to endure, which is a problem, right? Whether you're a pastor, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, it doesn't matter what you do. You can look at your life in the way that this is for me to be consumed for myself, right? That if if my life was a feast, I'm supposed to eat it by myself in my dining room, not to invite my neighbors and my family and my friends and those whom I'm supposed to serve to to, to spend my feast for them. That's a wrong assumption. That's why Jesus says it's better to give than to receive, so let me end this series with, with an encouragement to all of us. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you make a lot of money or not, the story of the Bible is very simple. God is infinitely rich, and he spent all of his resources, all of his wealth and his glory and his goodness for us. He's invited us in to his wealth and his riches. But the flip side of that is every one of us are headed for the same destination. A box. And you can't take much in that box. And you won't even know how much you took in that box. And so if you can't fit much in there, spend it. Spend it all. As we look at Acts 20, as we unpack these verses, there's three places I think Paul would want us to spend our life, our resources. First, he would want us to spend our life for the vulnerable. Alright, Verse 35, we must help the weak. The vulnerable. So, we started this series with the guy on the side of the road in Luke 10, the story of the Samaritan. Don't not walk by the people in need in your life. So, students, help the vulnerable at your schools. The unpopular, the new student, the student who has no one to sit with at lunch, sit next to them. And if you have a job, even though your generosity may not be as much as, as what it would be when you're 30, by a, a dollar standpoint, it may not feel like you're giving much. Cultivate that. that that uh, habit of generosity now in your life. Give. And for us adults, I think where I'd want to see, since, since I, I think we, we are a very generous congregation, it means we want to we spend our lives wisely as we, we think about generosity. right? We don't want to just intend to help the vulnerable. We want to actually help the vulnerable. And So that's why one reason why we as a church, we work with partnerships as opposed to, to trying to do ministry on our own. We we know there are people in or all over Kansas City who are doing better work than we would do, and so we partner with them and pour our resources into them because those resources are going to be better spent, better used, better leveraged through partners who are are better positioned. So the perfect example, in our our culture, one of the most vulnerable um, um, parts of our society are children, in particular unborn children. And so we work through our partner, Advice and Aid, who best know how to care for those moms in unplanned pregnancies, who best know how to care for those families, to welcome those kids, into those lives who best know how to connect the dad into that family, they do such better work, have such better ideas. And if we here were we're to come up with our own stuff and start something brand new, so we pour our help for the vulnerable, the unborn, into advice and aid. Or once um, children are born, then another place where they become vulnerable is through through either being orphaned or single parents or through the foster care system, the the video we watched earlier from the Global Orphan Project. And that's why we, we partner with the Global Orphan project is because they do far better work caring for the, the orphans, caring for foster care children in our, in our society than, than we would ever do, right? I mean, if, if I as a pastor had gone to our local social workers and said, hey, could you start sending me your needs and we'd like to meet them as a church, tr- they would have said, no, you're crazy. Who are you? Like shave and then come talk to me, right? I mean, they would not have trusted me. And yet Global Orphan Project is doing this work all over both the world as well as in our, our city. And so there's a credibility To where now you and I get to partner and meet needs on the ground because of their work. We pour our resources through them because we actually can help the vulnerable when we partner with people. So spend your life caring for the vulnerable. Find organizations that do good work and pour your generosity, whether it's your time, whether it's your treasure, into those places. Don't just want to help the vulnerable. Actually help the vulnerable, the weak. Spend your life for the vulnerable, but second, spend your life for the local church. But the Acts 20, the verses we didn't read, it ends with this, this picture of the intensity and the beauty and the, the intimacy, even, of the local church. Paul and these leaders who were seeing each other for the last time. Listen to verse 36. And When he had said these things, when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. These are obviously deeply close friends. And so the question is, why why, why is Paul leaving? Because they actually say earlier, Paul, don't leave. You don't have to leave. Come back. Be our pastor. Paul says, no, I am going to spend the rest of my life planning local churches all over the known world. Even though he knows it's going to put his life in danger, it did. It, It led to his own death. Paul says, I love you. I'll miss you. But I'm going to spend my life for the local church. Which I think in our context, where the local church probably doesn't have that sort of love, it's worth asking the question, why? Why pour your generosity into the local church? And I think before, to tackle that question, we first have this, well, why do we give anywhere to begin with? Right? And we tend to give because we see a need. right? A need becomes visible and present before us. Or we give because um, something affected us in our life, whether it's, it's a disease or, or something we experience. We want to give to causes that, that are do work in those arenas, or, or we give out of guilt, right, because a, a really well-edited commercial with just the right sad puppy set to just the right sad music hits, hits us in our heart, and suddenly we're like, I gotta, I gotta save that puppy, right, and it could be guilt why we, we give, and those are, those are good reasons to give, maybe not the guilt one so much, um, but, but there's a better reason. If we're designed as human beings to be people of generosity, if if core to your flourishing as a human being is to be generous, then then maybe there's a design into what God would want us to give our generosity to. This is where I find God fascinating. Because God did pour his whole life into this world. He was exceedingly generous into this world, and when he looked at this world and all of the things you and I broke in this world, the poverty and the oppression, the injustice, the disease, the sickness, when he looked at all of this broken world, what he decided to do was make for himself a people. He goes to this guy, Abraham, who had no kids and says, hey, you're old, you got no kids, I'm going to give you a kid. And then through that child, the whole world is going to be blessed. The whole world is going to be better off because of what I'm going to do through your family. Of course, the culminating moment of that family being when Jesus himself enters into our world. And what does Jesus do when he enters into this world? He says, that family is expanding out. It's not just going to be a, a genetic family or a race. It's going to be everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And God's answer to this broken world is a people. It was Israel first, and now it is the local church. It is God's church. And if that's true, if God's primary answer to this broken world is a people, then my assumption from that is, would be that, that our primary generosity should be directed towards that people, if we're a part of it. And I realize at that point you may say, well, Tim, you're a pastor. Of course you would say that. You're a little, little self-interested here, right? Or maybe you're, you're not a Christian and you think, big surprise, pastor thinks that people should give lots of money to, to the church. And to that, I would say two things. Um, I think it's a fair question because of the way many Christians have, have approached money and finances in the world. Many pastors have, have approached finances and, and money in our culture. But two things. One is, there's only one thing we need to do, ministry, at Christ Community. It's an empty tomb. If the tomb is empty, then Jesus is raised from the dead. A new kingdom has been initiated. And it doesn't matter whether you give or you don't. The church will not be stopped. We don't need... Money And so this is not a question of what we want from you. It's what we want for you. That if the story of the gospel is true and God's kingdom is breaking into this world through a people, through a church, how could we not want our generosity to flow into that people? That that's a better life. Participating with God and what he's doing in the world, it's a better life. Joining with God in the people he's creating and seeing our generosity flow into that space is a better life. We were designed for this. Maybe you think that that sounds crazy, and it is. I don't know why God's answer to this world was a people, especially a people like us. Right? And yet that's his answer. To pour his spirit out into us, his his church. And Paul makes this point elsewhere in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. When he probably the most specific place when he talks about your generosity and how it should flow towards the local. Church, and when he talks about how generous Christians should be, what's interesting is, or how generous we should be as Christians, he, he points to another church. He says, "Look at this; these churches in Macedonia give like they give." It was in Second Corinthians eight and nine, it was written to a church in Corinth, but he tells to these Corinthians, "Give like that church." Here's what he says in Second Corinthians eight three: it "says For they, the Macedonian churches, gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord." That fascinates me. What does it mean that they gave beyond their means, beyond their ability, as some translations say? I don't know specifically, but I do, I do think it means at least this. It does mean that our giving as Christians should not be less than a sacrifice. To, to, to be even more specific, or will give you a metaphor. Our giving should cut into our lifestyle. That when you think about your own giving, I would say 2 Corinthians 8 is saying you and I, As Christians should live below the standard of living those who who don't know Jesus live out who make a similar income. And that's not to say non Christians are not generous. Obviously, they are. That would be a ridiculous thing to say. But listen, if your generosity has not cut into your lifestyle, then I'm not sure you've understood the love of Christ over your life. Maybe you hear that and say, well, why? why? Why should it cut into my lifestyle? Give me some. Well, that's where Paul goes next. When he begins to unpack for them, here's what generosity should look for you. Here's what he says later in verse 8. He says, I say this to you, give beyond your ability, beyond your demand. Let your giving cut into your lifestyle. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is a this is a really powerful argument. What Paul is saying here is, is listen, you don't, you don't have to. I'm not saying you have to give this way. But I am saying if, if you know Jesus' love, you will give this way. He's not saying this is the percentage. Go and do it and forget about it. This is not a legalistic rule. Paul is saying if you have, if the love of Christ, what God has done for you through Jesus, if it has entered your heart, there is no way that your generosity will not cut into your lifestyle. There's no way, because look at the way Jesus cut into his lifestyle for you. He gave up the riches of heaven to take your cross. He gave up the joy of the Father to take the wrath of God that's on that should have been on me. Jesus took for himself. He spent his love on people like me who loved, who nailed him to a cross for it. And if he cut into his life, his gifts, his wealth, all of his resources to give to you and I, how could we look at him and not do the same? And so I realize that, that raises practical questions. Okay, so how much, how much do, you, do you give away? I don't... I don't know. There's not a verse that says, here's your tax, go and pay it. There's not. What I will say is the Old Testament was 10%. And if if my reflection on the New Testament, what Christ has done for me, through Jesus' death, dying on a cross, his blood being shed, his body being broken for me, if my response to that is now I can give less, I have badly misunderstood the the love of Christ in some place. And I realize that, that may say, sound even crazier, right, that some pastors just say, let's get to 10%. I, I think there's an expectation. Possibly our, our generosity should go beyond that, more than 10%. So maybe that, that sounds crazy, but wherever you're at in your life this morning, I would encourage two next steps from this morning. First is, is pick a percentage, if you're a Christian, I would fight hard to get to 10. If that just sounds, uh, you, you do the math when you get home, you're like, oh, wow, that's a lot of money. Just pick two, three, just start somewhere. And then use your life and work to increase it. Whether you're at 10 now whether you're, you're less, work to increase this. When raises come, when promotions come, don't just see that as an opportunity to celebrate for yourself, although I will say celebrate for yourself, for your family, for your friends. But also see that as an opportunity to increase your generosity through your life, that God is pouring more resources into your life, not just for you to experience his blessing, but for you to share it and be generous with others. And so through your life, work to increase your giving both to the local church and to those causes, those places that are helping the vulnerable, helping things that you care deeply about. And now that I've pushed and challenged us in our generosity, now comes the relief where as a pastor of Christ Community, I, I have to say thank you. There's two words I want you to hear as a member of this church. It is, it is thank you because the, the generosity displayed at this church it b- blows me away. It is far and beyond anything a pastor could hope or imagine from a people. Your generosity is why we started this campus nine months early. We were able to go because we had the, the margin there to go and to, to, to start. Your, margin, your generosity is why we are able to be involved in so many places in the city, like the Global Orphan Project, like Advice and Aid, like the Hope Center Mission on Adelante. We're able to be engaged in so many different places in the city because of your generosity. And so let me just say thank you for that. It's an encouragement to me, and better yet, it's challenged me. I remember coming to Christ Community out of seminary, wanting to increase our giving and just feeling, even after we did that, to think, it's not enough. When I look around at the people who give sacrificially at this church, I've got more work to do. And so also, having said that, one thing I've, I've heard frequently since I've become a pastor here is, is people will say, well, I, that's why I don't need to give to Christ community because Christ community is fine. The bills are paid. There's no deaths, right? We haven't, um, you know, done sad puppy videos yet that if you don't start giving, we're going to turn the lights off in Leawood. It. It, it, we're, we're, we are in amazing shape. God has been exceedingly generous to us, But if that's, if that's your reaction, I would say a couple things. One is, is to look around and remind us that we're in a gym right now. And it's going to be 60 degrees in like a month or two months. Um, I don't know. I try not to think about it too much. We, we want a building, and we've searched hard and prayed hard for a cheap, easy solution. It's not come, which means we're going to have to go for a long, expensive solution, um, apparently. And we're praying, we're hoping, but we don't know. We, we have a serious physical um, building need that we want to meet. There's more we want to do in our community. There's more we want to do for our kids, for our, our students, right? That, that, there are needs all around. We just don't believe in being a church that advertises our needs and makes you feel guilty and gives us more money. We're just not, that's not how we operate. And the second thing I, I would say, and this is gentle, but also a little strong, that don't, don't let the generosity of others be a reason for you not to be generous. We are good because people are sacrificially giving. Don't let that be a reason for you to sit out. Join this. Join them. Imagine what kind of neighbor we could be to Shawnee if all of us committed to this life together, what we could do together. So create margin in your life to give generous. And if, if all of that is still, what do I practically help me? Here's, a, here's a, a diagnostic question I would ask you that you should ask yourself as you think through your generosity. And it's this, is there evidence in your life of sacrifice and celebration, right? We're not a church that thinks Christians should live in poverty and you should give it all, and if, if you have two coats, that's some... no, is there evidence in your life of sacrifice, right? Things you've said no to, where you've said, even though people of my income, this is a normal thing, I'm not going to live into that so that I can be more generous to those around me and to God's local church. And is there evidence of celebration where you, do, you spend it all for, for a vacation for your family, for your spouse who's worn out, be generous, and, and there should be evidence in all of our lives of both celebration and sacrifice. And so, spend your life for the local church. Because in spending your life for the local church, you thirdly the third thing we should, place we should spend our life is you spend your life for the gospel. Ultimately, the best neighbor is the neighbor who says, hey, this broken world, everything that's wrong in your life, it can be made right through a man named Jesus who died on a cross and came back three days later. Share that news with your friends, your neighbors, your family. Invite them to church. Right? That is The best neighbor is the neighbor who says, hey, our neighborhood that, that has some great parts but also is falling apart, it will be fixed one day by Jesus. So spend your life announcing the good news of the gospel. Spend your life for the local church. Spend your life for the vulnerable. Because listen, we're all headed for a box. And we're not taking anything with us in the box. So spend it all. Your heart won't covet there. And what your heart covets now, it will not take with you. So don't covet and work hard and spend it all. That Jesus knew he was going into his tomb empty-handed. Right? He spent it all for us. His blood was emptied out on the cross. His body was broken for us on the cross. Even his own clo- the clothes off his back were stripped off of him. as people, for sport, gambled away his clothing. And he went into the tomb with absolutely nothing. And three days later came out to riches that no mind could comprehend or no eye has ever seen. And so you and I can live into this life spinning it all. We're not taking anything with us. Nothing's going in the box with us. To suspend your life well. And then go into your box empty-handed. Heart tired of beating for the vulnerable in the local church. Hands open because they gave every last piece you could give. Go in with nothing. Because if you're in Christ, you will be raised to riches untold. Let's pray.